this morning, I'm genuinely excited about this because we're starting a new book. And it's always fun when we start a new book because it's so, there's sort of some kind of a freshness about it. But I really, uh, I think this is going to be something that will be a great encouragement to us um, for lots of different reasons. So we're in the epistles of John and we'll be going through them over the, the next however many weeks it takes uh, to get through. We're not going to set a, a, a time limit on it. We'll just see how the Lord leads us as we go through. But this morning, I thought what we do to start with is a little bit of background on John himself, the the man who wrote these things, and then we'll look at a little bit of an overview of the the first epistle, and then we'll try and take uh, the first chapter. There's only ten verses in it, um, so we'll see how we get on. So, when we think of John, of course, this is the apostle that we read about in the Gospels. John was given that title early on in his ministry of being one of the sons of thunder, along with his brother James. They were both sons of Zebedee. We read that in Matthew 20, verse 20. And uh, Salome was their mother. James was his brother. James seems to have been the older of the two, the way that they're listed in Scripture. James is listed first and then his brother. So it would seem to be uh, that the younger of the two was John. And most uh, commentators think that John would have been round about 20 years old uh, or under, uh, possibly late teens, but certainly no older than 20, uh, at the beginning of this, uh, this ministry as Jesus comes and calls him. John was, of course, as we know, a fisherman by trade. Peter, uh, James and John later then become part of this inner group of the disciples. So although they were part of the group of 12 that Jesus had hand-picked and chosen, John himself is uh, one of these three, Peter, James and John, that get caught aside in a sense to these private uh, briefings, if you like, that Jesus gives them. Of course, the Mount of Transfiguration is one of those occasions. We see it also in the Garden of Gethsemane that these three uh, are separated from the rest of the disciples and brought aside by Jesus. It uh, doesn't mean they're any more important necessarily, um, but just that there's certain things that were revealed to them uh, that maybe the others didn't get um, that first-hand experience of. We do find in Matthew 20 uh, that John's mum, Salome, had sown discord amongst the disciples because she goes to Jesus and basically says, look, I want my boys to to have the best job uh, in uh, in your coming kingdom. And uh, there's a we also find that John, uh, whether this was at the same time that John and James had also posed this question about having some sort of position or authority. So, you know, sometimes John is presented um, by some commentators and certainly bible critics as being maybe a little bit effeminate i mean when you read the scriptural account there's nothing of the sort i mean to have that title son of thunder and the fact that he was some strong burly fisherman um this clearly great ambition that he had um john was quite a character certainly the fact that we go on to find that later he has this title being the apostle of love or uh, the one whom jesus loved uh, there's clearly a tenderness about the man, um, but that's not to be uh, mistaken for any kind of weakness or anything else. He was very strong in character, uh, and we see that through the things that he writes. Uh, John was called at the start of Jesus's Galilean ministry. Um, so Peter and Andrew, the first two that are called, uh, but then shortly afterwards, uh, whether they were friends, whether they worked together or competitors, but we find then that along with Peter and Andrew, James and John, also fishermen, are then called to follow Jesus. You know, uh, we've mentioned this before, that this call that these disciples had was quite incredible. When the uh, Jewish uh, men or young men would finish their education, um, typically round about 
at uh, the age of 12 years, they would normally go into the family business. That would be what would happen typically. Um, some of the ones who are really gifted would then have a few extra years of education. Um, and then the best of the best would then go on and sit under a rabbi and become their Talmudim or they become their disciple. Um, now, by the time that Jesus comes to call Peter and Andrew, James and John and the other disciples, they were way past that point. Uh, they were clearly getting about their lives and they're getting into the, their professions, of course, for John, as we said, a fisherman. So for a rabbi to turn up on the scene and come and call these people, it's like getting a, a scholarship way after the point naturally you'd have assumed or thought you may have been in contention for that. I mean, John clearly didn't see himself in that position earlier on in his life. He wasn't given that opportunity. But now Jesus comes and, in a sense, out of due time, very much like uh, Paul uses that expression, John gets this call to come and sit at the feet of a rabbi, to come and learn of this rabbi, to learn and understand. Um, Now, of course, there was no doubt some fascination. Jesus was starting to um, turn heads because of the miracles that were being done, because of the things that were taking place. Um, so there's, there's a curiosity, but clearly there was also a love for God's word, a love for, at the time, that which they had, the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures. And we see that coming through really with all of the disciples. They all had this, this love, this uh, reverence for God. And clearly, as Jesus comes speaking about the things of God, there was more than just a fascination. There was a genuine desire to understand about God. And we see that coming again through the things that John writes. As we mentioned, he's probably one of the youngest disciples. And uh, we also mentioned that, you know, the, the family side of things. But the family clearly were well respected. Uh, they had hired servants, so they were obviously of means. They weren't a poor family in that respect. Uh, but we also find from John eighteen fifteen that the family, and certainly John himself, were actually known by the high priest. Now, of all the people in Israel, that's probably a, 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 a quite a small group that, in a sense, were known personally by the high priest. Uh, we see it in the fact that when Jesus is arrested... Um, and the soldiers and guards come to Gethsemane. Uh, Peter follows on at a distance, but John is invited in uh, to the house to actually uh, under or to see these things taking place. And of course, John gives us uh, account of all the things that he witnessed and saw in that period of time. Well, we also find that John was later given the charge by Jesus at the foot of the cross, as they were standing at the foot of the cross to look after Mary, Jesus's mother, from a physical perspective. Interestingly, in Scripture, Jesus never calls Mary mother. Now, that's not to say that she wasn't. Of course, we know she was um, from purely a, a biological perspective, but he never actually uses that expression of Mary, he never calls her mother. Um, just an interesting little aside. Uh, of course, the Catholic Church make much of Mary um, and sometimes to the detriment of, of probably the, the balanced position, which is understanding that she was indeed very special, that the Lord did choose her. And she had this incredible role uh, that God chose for her in bringing Jesus into this world to carry Jesus uh, and to give birth to him and then obviously to look after him as he was growing up. Joseph, we don't know uh, what happened. He disappears off the scene. Joseph, of course, um, not Jesus' father, uh, despite, as we've said a number of times, what modern versions tend to translate, um, whereas um, God was his father, modern versions insert the fact that uh, they speak of Mary as the mother and Joseph as his father. Um, and of course, we know that's not the case. 
Um, but um, Joseph, for whatever reason, disappears off the scene uh, at some point early on, somewhere after the age of 12 in Jesus's life. Um, and then later then at the cross, John is given this responsibility of looking after Mary, which is interesting because we know that Jesus had at least four other brothers. Now, uh, we know that James, one of those brothers who writes the epistle of James that we studied recently, um, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We also understand that Jude um, becomes a very integral part of the church. Jude writing, of course, the epistle of Jude that we have in the New Testament. Uh, but they are not asked to to take on this responsibility. John is asked by Jesus to look after Mary. And that has some really interesting things that will come out in the, the uh, writings of John that we're going to look at over the coming weeks. Well, later we find that John became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Uh, it's a role also that Timothy seemed to have had some involvement with as well. Now, whether they were working together or whether this is at uh, different times in their ministries, we don't know. But certainly John has this period of time where he's there working with and ministering to the, the saints at the church at Ephesus. Mary also relocated to Ephesus, which is not surprising given the fact that there's this connection then between John and Mary. But interestingly, we find that a rumour had spread that John was not going to die. Now, this comes from the words that Jesus speaks at the end of John's Gospel. I just want to read to you, uh, just so we get the context of this, and you understand where this uh, this error came from, because it was an error, and even John himself makes that point. Uh, at the end of John's Gospel, if you remember, Jesus restores Peter very graciously. Um, and uh, we simply read... Um, that uh, then Peter turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following, which uh, also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, which is, uh, so which is he that betrayeth thee? Oh, sorry, oh, that's when John asked at the supper, which is he that betrayeth thee? And Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, what, what shall this man do? Now, Jesus had just told Peter that effectively he was going to be martyred. He was going to give his life. And so Peter asked the question, so well, what about John? And the response that Jesus gives is this. He says in verse 22, Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Now, John actually gives us this account. And he says, then when this saying abroad among the brethren, that the disciple should not die. And yet Jesus said not unto him that he should not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Okay, so John just gives us this account. But this uh, rumour had started spreading. It had uh, obviously gone further than just the, the immediate group of disciples. And interestingly, we have an account by Tertullian. Now, this is not history as such. We don't know. We can't verify this. But uh, in a book that was written and the kind of the end of the, the first century or a little bit after that point, uh, referred to as the, the prescription of heretics. Um, Tertullian records that John was arrested by Rome, uh, by the emperor, and was plunged into boiling oil uh, in Rome. Now, this was supposed to be a spectacle, and a number of people in the Colosseum, seemingly this is where it was supposed to have taken place, saw this happen. Now, the reason, apparently, was because John had this uh, reputation of being indestructible, that he wasn't going to die. So they thought, well, they're going to make certain. So they put him into this boiling vat of oil. Now, that was apparently what happened. Now, what Tertullian records is that John was not harmed by it whatsoever. So this presents a real problem to the emperor, because apparently, uh, again, uh, there's, there's questions about the historicity of this, but Tertullian's account uh, comments on the fact that many, many people who were there who witnessed it became Christians as a result. 
which is interesting itself. What we do know is that certainly after this point, John is then banished or exiled to Patmos, which was like a, a penal colony at the time. Um, so John then spends this time on the Isle of Patmos um, as supposed punishment to get John out of the way. Uh, if they can't kill him, then at least keep him out of the way. It seemed to be the, the idea. But it's obviously while John is on the little island of Patmos, which is just off the coast of uh, Turkey, we'll show you in a little while. But it's while he's there that he receives the revelation. And it's the revelation on the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And of course, John records that for us. And uh, because he's given us this account, we have it in the word of God. Um, and it's incredible. A lot of people have problems with revelation, but when you understand a little bit of the way John writes, you start to see his style coming through. Of course, there's lots of sevens through revelation, but actually John writes that way, even in his gospel. And we see that coming out in the letters too. Um, John has this kind of uh, interesting style of writing and you see it coming through all the things that he wrote. Well, after his time on Patmos, John then later returns to Ephesus uh, and spends time there again, seemingly pastoring or looking after the church uh, or maybe by that point supporting Timothy. Um, what we also know is that Polycarp, another figure from early church history, later becomes a disciple of John. Um, and there were others as well that uh, John had a significant impact and influence on. So by this point, toward the end of John's life, almost all, if not all, the other disciples had been martyred for their faith. Uh, one commentator put it that John uh, was confined to the martyrdom of a long life, um, that he had this uh, long uh, in a sense, extended life compared to the other disciples. And yet he used the whole uh, of his time to glorify God, to speak of God, to speak of Jesus, of what had been accomplished, and the fact that he'd been an eyewitness to these things. Just to give some uh, context for where Patmos is, uh, you can see there on the larger map, um, obviously you've got Greece to the left and Turkey to the right. And it's just off the coast of Turkey, you've got the little island of Patmos, and then you can see in the smaller box on the left there, um, you've got the Greek islands, as they're sometimes referred to, and uh, Patmos being one of those, um, this small island. That's a little bit of what it looks like, uh, just to give you some sort of feel. Typical Greek island in terms of the, the sandy beaches and lovely clear seas and so on. Uh, but that's where John would have been exiled. And don't think for a minute it would have been an idyllic holiday for him. Of course, he was there uh, probably quarrying, digging uh, out rocks and things like that as part of this uh, supposed punishment. Uh, of clearly, if uh, his time in Ephesus is anything to go by and the witness he had there, he was kind of causing quite a stir. And no doubt that's why Rome were concerned um, by this individual. And as we said, it's while he's there that uh, he receives the revelation that we have in Scripture. Um, it's believed that John later died, and of course, and was buried in Ephesus uh, in the 6th century. There was a basilica that was built uh, over the supposed place of his burial. That's a picture of the ruins of that basilica. Uh, there is also a monument, a supposed uh, tomb of where uh, John is buried in this island, about a mile just outside the city of Ephesus itself. So there's a couple of suggestions and ideas of where John was actually buried, but um, these are the um, places that are traditionally held to be the case. Not that it really has any bearing on, on anything that we're interested in today. In regards to the spiritual background, though, this is quite interesting because as John is writing these letters, he's writing against his background of rising Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism, you may ask? Well, Gnosis uh, in the Greek simply means knowledge. 
And there came along a, a group of people very much influenced by um, the Eastern uh, cultures and ideas and religions, and very much also influenced by the Greek um, 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 the likes of Plato, um, these philosophers and Socrates and Aristotle and so on. And a lot of those ideas and knowledge, of course, was uh, the big thing of the, the time, the Greek uh, time. And so they had this supposedly greater knowledge or greater understanding. And it becomes really prevalent during the early years of the church and becomes a real problem for the church because many were starting to get drawn into this. I mean, it's not a lot different to the days in which we live, where we, of course, have... Uh, our academia, we have our schools, our universities, um, and so on, that try and prevent, uh, present uh, an impression and a worldview that is very much removed from scripture. And of course, it's a challenge for young people, particularly when they go to universities where they may have grown up in a, a church family or a, a, a Christian family, and they're suddenly uh, thrust into this situation whereby they're being indoctrinated effectively by the world's view and the world's opinions. And so what happens is there tends to be this marrying of the worldly views and perspectives and the Christian perspective, and we end up with this mishmash which of course doesn't do anybody any favours. Uh, certainly the, the people that are, are caught up in this uh, end up with a very much weakened faith where they stop trusting and relying on the Bible because they're told they can't trust and rely on the Bible. Well, we know we can, but nevertheless, uh, this problem was existing very much in the early church. And in John's day, in John's time, this was starting to occur. Uh, Gnosticism really is essentially a philosophy, uh, and it kind of centers on that search for and discovery of this supposed higher knowledge, a knowledge that your average person can't attain. But what they believed, what they taught was that once you got this knowledge, this understanding, this spiritual knowledge, it wasn't an intellectual knowledge, but it was a spiritual understanding that once you got to this state you were then saved and of course it totally undermines and detracts from the gospel message that the gospel is not about your intellect or your ability or anything else it's about what christ has done so we see the the obvious danger of these things now this knowledge, again, having it was supposedly to be saved. And uh, the other major doctrine of Gnosticism was the separation of spirit and matter. Now, there were two kind of branches of, of the Gnostics, but one of them really played heavy on this idea. Uh, and they considered all matter was evil and it was the source of all evil. So even our bodies and the physical frame and everything else, that's matter. Therefore, it's inherently evil. And the spirit was considered to be good uh, and impervious to defilement by anything that the body or matter actually did. So there was this real separation between the physical and the spiritual in their minds. Now, of course, that plays into the whole heresies that start to get introduced into the church as their question about Jesus, because they taught that Jesus was born as a normal man. Uh, just an ordinary human being. And it was his baptism that the Christ spirit came upon him and remained upon him until the time of the crucifixion when that spirit left him again. And this was one of the ideas. So they're saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he just died as an ordinary man. Well, I'm sure you can spot the obvious problem there, that if Jesus was not God as he went to the cross, then he could not pay for our sins. And if he could not pay for our sins, then there is no salvation. Of course, completely contrary to the gospel. So you start to get a flavour and an idea of why John writes the way he does. And as we go through over the coming weeks, we'll see this uh, played out. 
the other branches of Gnosticism taught that Jesus didn't really have a physical body at all, uh, and that actually he was a phantom, effectively, uh, only that he seemed to have a physical body. And so they even go as far as saying that when Jesus walked, he wouldn't have left footprints because he didn't have a physical frame. Uh, and so on. So these were the things that John and the early church were starting to wrestle with. Jude, as he writes his epistle, starts by saying, you know, I want to talk to you about God and uh, common salvation, but, you know, I've got to warn you about these things that are going on. John very much in the same position. Well, if we look at the order and the time of writing of uh, John's writings in general, it would seem, and there are, there's, there's various views on this, but from what I've read and studied and the things I've looked at, this seems to me to be the most likely, with biblical support, uh, order that John wrote. So the first one is the second epistle of John. It seems to be the first one that he wrote, uh, which is this letter to the elect lady. And the reason that I'm putting in this order uh, is that this contains a warning about coming apostates, okay, and those, the Gnostics and others. So it, it has a warning that they're coming. Be ready. Be careful if they do come, is effectively the message that we get in Second John. And then First John, which is a general letter to the church itself. It's not written to an individual, uh, as the other epistles are. And in that sense, this is more of a sermon than an epistle, uh, which is like a letter from one to another. This is a general letter, uh, sermon, if you will, for the church to, to learn from. But in First John, what we're going to see, it actually contains rebuke of the present apostates. So whereas in Second John, there's a warning that be careful, uh, that I think they're coming, be ready for it. In First John, they've arrived. Um, so there seems to be this progression through these ideas. Um, in third John, we have a letter to Gaius. There's this wonderful, uh, believer, uh, clearly a fellow brother that John writes to. We'll look at that in, uh, as and when we get there. And, uh, there's references in that letter to the previous letter that he'd written to the church, uh, which would imply that that's referring back to first John. It could be another letter that we don't have altogether, um, but if it is a reference to, thir- to First John, it means that Third John was indeed written after First John. The numbers, by the way, is simply like we have in the Old Testament, where you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. We don't have a, a chronology going through. Some of the minor prophets were written before the major prophets. It's simply the quantity of writing uh, that tends to dictate the order in which they occur in Scripture. So. And it's not necessarily uh, that one book is before another book uh, from a chronological point of view. Uh, and seemingly the same here. Uh, what we have, the, the order they have are in scripture really has more to do with the size of them than anything else. Well, then we have obviously Revelation, which John receives. Now, of course, if you just think of the, the scenario, the picture, John is a, a pastor at the church in Ephesus, clearly doing great exploits and encouraging and teaching the church there. Uh, he writes that first letter. It contains rebuke again for those apostates and for the Gnostics. And you can start to see why there would be bad feeling and why potentially Rome get interested in this individual uh, who's causing a stir, no doubt, just as Paul did wherever Paul went. Uh, so John seems to have done. Uh, and it kind of makes sense as to why it leads to the situation with John being exiled to Patmos. And clearly we know it's there that he receives revelation. And interestingly, in Revelation, in chapter 2, we have seven letters to seven churches that are written by Jesus himself. When we consider the letters in the New Testament, we often miss the fact that Jesus writes seven letters in the New Testament to seven churches, but they're contained within Revelation. 
Now, in chapter 2, we have the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is where John had been pastor. Uh, and in that letter, the church is commended by Jesus for rejecting these apostates, not allowing them a foothold, for having the same kind of attitude toward them that Jesus has. Uh, and so we see that kind of progression that uh, 2 John has a warning about the coming apostates. 1 John has a rebuke because they're now there. And in Revelation, there's a commendation, the fact that they have come and the church stood firm against them. So just an interesting um, uh thought um, we don't need to make doctrine of these things um, if somebody wants to place them in a different order that's fine it doesn't really matter uh, it just maybe gives us a little bit of an insight as to to the ideas and the kind of culture the time of what was going on there uh, and then finally we would seem to have the gospel of john itself seems to be the last thing that john wrote uh, pulling lots of ideas from the things already that uh, he'd seen and uh, alluded to in Revelation. There's a number of things we find in the Gospel of John um, that are seemingly drawn from some of the things in Revelation, the way that John writes. So just a suggestion that the Gospel of John may have been the last thing uh, that he wrote out of all the, the things he did write. Now, just as an aside here, uh, in terms of the time that they were written, Revelation must have been written before 70 AD. Now, this is very contrary to most commentators that you'll uh, read today, uh, and including most of the Calvary Chapel pastors, and I myself in the past when we talked through Revelation, went with the commonly held position that Revelation was probably written at the end of the first century, around about 96 AD. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, the common view is that John was banished to Patmos by the Emperor uh, Domitian. And Domitian, we know, was in power from AD 81 to 96. So that's where we get that time frame from. But the only reason for presuming that John was on Patmos at this time is because that's when Domitian uh, actually was uh, in office as effect. So um, if this isn't the emperor that banished John, then actually that whole theory is completely thrown out the window. There is no other biblical support or no other suggestion um, that John was exiled during that latter period of the first century. What we do know is that we have Papyrus 98. Now, this is a fragment of the book of Revelation. It was found in Egypt and it contains a copy. And bear in mind, let me make the point again, a copy of the portion of Revelation from chapter 113 to chapter 2, verse 1. But it was found in Egypt. Now, it's pretty certain that it wasn't part of the original manuscript itself. That means that the original manuscript, that which John wrote, must have been copied probably a number of times and was circulating such that a portion of this or a copy of Revelation could have made it as far as Egypt at that time. And then obviously this fragment later is discovered. That fragment uh, has been pretty much confirmed dates to the latter part of the first century. Well, it's interesting because if that fragment was from a copy and that was found at the end of the first century, Revelation must have been written before that point. So it brings it much earlier on than most commentators and scholars suggest. And the reason I'm sharing this about Revelation is because it obviously plays into when John's writings took place. Now, the other interesting thing is that Revelation doesn't contain any reference to the destruction of the temple. No mention of it, which given the theme and the ideas in Revelation is very unusual. You'd expect if the temple had been destroyed, some reference, some allusion to it, but there's no mention of it. Uh, and in fact, there's no mention of the destruction of the temple in any of the letters in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus pr prophesies it in Matthew 24 and so on, Luke 
uh, 21 and so on. Um, but the actual destruction itself has not happened as far as any of the New Testament writers are concerned when they write. And it places the writing of the Bible, the New Testament, much earlier than a lot of the critics would like to have us believe. Uh, and we know certainly that a number of New Testament fragments were found in Cave 7 in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which prove that these books were written before 68 AD when those uh, caves were sealed up. Um, so just as an aside, so um, again, there's no mention in any of John's writings about the destruction of the temple, which you would think there would have been some mention had that big, big, significant event in the life of any Jew. Had that have occurred, it's surprising that they're not mentioned. So the conclusion from a number of directions puts all of these writings much earlier than typically has uh, been claimed or suggested. In fact, even a lot of commentaries suggest. Um, again, Revelation chapter 2 references uh, those who claimed to be apostles. Now, that's interesting because, again, all the apostles except John had died by AD 70. So if Revelation wasn't written until sometime later, the fact that we have people claiming to be apostles at that point wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, people would know that the apostles were no longer there. Those that have been with Jesus uh, typically was the qualification that Paul gives. Interestingly, also, there's no record uh, of Domitian um, persecuting Christians or Jews. So this idea that he was the one that banished John just doesn't stack up historically. In fact, it's far more likely that John was banished to Patmos by Nero, who we know did persecute Christians. And that would put it back in the time frame that we've suggested. In fact, if you look at Nero's name, uh, Claudius is one of those uh, parts of his name. Um, and also his birth name includes uh, Domitius. So this suggestion uh, that Domitius was involved may not be actually the emperor. It could all have reference to Nero. And there's a number of other reasons why that seems to be the case. So without going uh, too much off track, just a little bit of the historical side. What it does, it tells us that these are much earlier than a lot of critics and a lot of commentators say, and much closer to the original actual events. And that's significant because of some of the things that John will say. Let's just have a quick look at the theme uh, as we go into this. So um, first John is written, as I said, already to the church. Um, it's not dealing with a, a specific problem or situation. Uh, it's more of a sermon, as I said, than an uh, epistle. And uh, because this is applicable to all Christians, uh, he addresses his hearers as uh, technion in the, the Greek. It's an affectionate term. Uh, we see at the beginning of the second chapter where he says, my little children. Um, and really it means born ones, uh, effectively those who have been born into this family, those who have been born again. That's how he references those to whom he's writing. Now, John tells us that he has five reasons for writing, um, specifically that he, he lists himself in the, the um, uh, record of First John. Firstly, in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we'll see in a short while, uh, that which we have seen and heard we declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship. So this is one of the reasons that John writes that we would have fellowship, and we'll come to this, we'll look at it in a little bit more detail in a moment. Um, and that fellowship is clearly a, a, an important thing. It says, and these things we write, that your joy may be full. That's in verse four. So that we would have fellowship with God and with each other, that our joy would be full. And then in uh, chapter two, verse one, John says, these things I write that you sin not. In chapter 2, verse 26, these things I've written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Um, now, that, interestingly enough, 
could be a reference to the things he had already written. Um, so maybe there's a, a suggestion that the, the, we're talking about the order of the books, um, but clearly in this epistle itself, John is writing about those that would seduce them, a warning and so on. And then uh, finally in chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written unto you, that uh, you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John's reasons for writing, and for us, if you're making notes, these are the things that you should get out of this, that firstly, John writes that you may have fellowship with God, an intimate, abiding relationship. The second thing is that your joy may be full. That's why John's writing, because he wants you to realize what God has done, the hope we have, the certainty we have, because he wants your joy to be full and not shaken by the things of the world. John writes also that we sin not. John is very adamant, very much like James really emphasizes this point, And Peter, as we've seen, Peter makes the point that we should be holy because he is holy and so on. There is no room for sin in a believer's life. And Peter, uh, sorry, John makes this point that he's writing that we should not carry on habitually in sin. And then the things he's written again concerning them that seduce you to warn you that there will be people that will deceive us. So again, Jesus Paul, John obviously here, Jude, and many of the writers that we find throughout the New Testament all make this point that deception is coming, there will be those that will try and deceive us and seduce you and so on. And finally, that we would have this assurance of eternal life. It's interesting, there's a big debate, even in the church today, as to whether we can be assured of our salvation. Um, this kind of once saved, always saved, or you know that type of idea. And you know, Some will argue one side, some will argue another side. John seems to be very clear on the subject because he says that he's writing that you may know you have eternal life. If it's eternal, you can't lose it because if you could lose it, it's not eternal. If it's something you've been given forever, well, that really seals it. The the life we have once we are born again is something that will go on forever. You can't lose it. You can't forfeit it because you didn't earn it in the first place. It's a gift that has been given to you. And John makes this point. I'm going to explore those themes as we go through. In addition, John exalts God in his epistles. And we see in chapter one, he makes a statement that God is light. In chapter four, that God is love. Uh, back in chapter two, again, God is righteous. In chapter five, God is life. And then in second uh, John, that God is truth. And then finally in third John, that God is good. Just an interesting statement of these things. God is light. He is love. He is righteous. He is life itself he is truth and he is good john also gives us seven tests for the christian believer and we'll look at these as we go through the verses over the coming weeks but in this first chapter we see the the question posed do you walk in the light that's the first test for a christian believer how are you getting on you know even cars vehicles have an mot they have a health check you know, but as Christians, how regularly do we have an MOT, a spiritual health check? Well, John is going to give us just that. And he's going to say, are you walking in the light? In fact, he says, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So he gives us some very clear instructions about what we should be like, what our lives should be like, the fruit that we should be seeing, our attitudes to other people and obviously to God and so on. He asks the question, effectively, do you admit that you're a sinner? Are you prepared to do that? Are you humble enough to say, yeah, I am a sinner? 
A lot of people in the world are too proud to make that statement. They think they're a good person. They think that they're okay, not too bad, that they're better than someone else. And of course, they'll compare themselves with somebody else as if that's a standard that we should use. Well, the Bible compares us to God. That's the standard. And of course, that's why in the book of Romans, Paul tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, have we come to that place? Have we realized our own iniquity, our sin, our transgression, those terms that we find used in the Old Testament, particularly those three different expressions, you know, sin, that old archery term uh, means missing the mark, you know, aim for something and you miss it. That's sin. Uh, we've all done that. We're all guilty of that. Transgression is when we cross the line. Trans, of course, going across. Transgression, to cross the line. And we've all done that as well with the laws, the rules, the commandments that God has given us. And then, of course, iniquity, which speaks of our own twisted human nature that we've inherited as a result of the fall. So the question, do you admit you're a sinner? And John says, if we say we have no sin or we're not carrying on, or we we have no habitual, or we're not prone to sin effectively, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Another question is, do you obey God's commandments? We read in chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is a really good test. You know, Do you walk in the light? Do you admit that you're a sinner? But do you obey God's commandments? So these are really poignant challenges for us to consider. Do you imitate Christ? Now, Paul speaks a lot about this, so we should be imitators of Christ. Well, John says that he that says that he abides in him, in Jesus, ought himself also so to walk even as he walks. In other words, you should be coming and be like Jesus. That's our goal. That's our aim. Do you love others as well, John asks. That's a test that John says that will indicate your the state of your heart. Have you come to that place of accepting Jesus Christ's completed work? Are you saved? If you are, these are the things that should be seen in your life. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. Do you still love the world? Is another question that John poses. He says, if any man loved the world, well, guess what? The love of the Father is not in him. So if you're still loving and hunkering after the things of the world, you need to do this kind of spiritual temperature check and see exactly where you are. And then the final one is the question asks that John, John puts forward, you know, does your life prove that Christ is righteous, that he is who he said he is? He is the Messiah. He is able to make us transformed, renewed, cleansed people. We read that if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. So if we are to be righteous, it proves that he is righteous. If we are not righteous, we're denying that he has the power to do that work in us. So these are really important questions and we'll explore them as we go through. I mentioned a little bit about Gnosticism already. Well, John assures us that there are seven things we can know because the Gnostics were saying, you know, well, you can't understand lots of things. You don't know these things. They're spiritual and you can't understand them. Well, John says, well, I'll tell you what, there are things we can know. And these are the things we can be absolutely assured of. Firstly, knowing God. He says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So it's a very simple test. John says, if you keep his commandments, then you know that you know God, that you have a relationship with him. The second one is that knowing that we are secure in God. Uh, but whoso keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. And he says, hereby we know that we are in him. Okay, so we have this security when we are in God, when we keep his word. 
knowing that we're born into his family. Now, this a couple of times this really comes up in 3.14 and in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So an indicator that we are born again is that we have love for not just other people, but the brethren. You know, we're a strange bunch of people, aren't we? You know, we come from all different backgrounds and situations. And naturally, we wouldn't necessarily migrate and spend time together. We wouldn't necessarily choose to, as we refer to it, fellowship. Because naturally, people tend to mix with and spend their times with people who are like-minded, often of a similar age group and so on. But we're mixing with a a strange mixed group of people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different countries, different ages. And yet we have this incredible unity together and this love for each other that comes from God. And John says this is a great way of knowing that you are born again when you see that evidence. And he also says that by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. It all comes back to being obedient to him. Uh, well, another one is that we uh, know that we are of the truth and we can know this. He says, let us not love the world. Uh, sorry, sorry. Let us not love in word, apologies, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. And he says, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Then the fifth one, uh, again, knowing that we, uh, sorry, knowing that God abides in us. We read that he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he's given us. So the spirit, again, is that confirmation, that seal we're told. that Paul uses that expression. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our inheritance. And then finally, again, knowing the spirit, not just knowing that he's within us, but knowing the Holy Spirit. Hereby, you know, the spirit of God. This isn't some impersonal force, as the Jehovah's Witness would try and teach. And various ideas that Gnostics had uh, questioned the the the, the um, personage of the Holy Spirit. But the scripture is very clear. Jesus was very clear when he spoke. And John recalls it for us that the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus. He's a comforter. He's a friend, somebody to assist us and help us in our walk. Uh, and hereby we know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And you start to see this combating of the Gnostic idea. Even that statement is of God. And then finally, knowing the truth from error. These are, again, the things that we can know. The Gnostics were claiming certain things. John says, well, you can know this stuff. This is the important stuff. Uh, we are of God. He that know, knoweth God hears us. And he that is not of God hears us not. Which is an interesting statement about people who have ears that are closed to spiritual things. Uh, hereby we know, uh, know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, we'll look at these in more detail as we get to those verses. Okay, let's jump into chapter one let's just bow our hearts at this point and just ask god to bless this time of study and just to illuminate our our thinking our understanding and that we would grow in grace father we just ask now as we begin this journey that father you do give us eyes to see and ears to hear father we do recognize that your word says that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the spirit of god nor can he know them they're foolish to him foolishness to him they're spiritually discerned and so we need your spirit to illuminate to help us to understand these things oh but father also take away any pride in our own hearts lord anything that would stand against you working in us through your spirit lord help us to be so sure, so certain of our salvation, of your love, of the wonderful family that you have brought it into as we study through these writings of John. 
We just commit this study, this period of time, however many weeks, Lord, uh, you take us through this journey. And Lord, this time this morning, we commit it now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, this is this statement, this opening statement that we have. Do you want to just break this down a little bit? That which was from the beginning. Now, it's interesting that John starts his gospel in a very similar way. Uh, but really, John is saying Jesus was there before the beginning began. Jesus is outside of time. Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. Jesus was born and took on physical form at that point. But Jesus is pre-existent. Jesus was there before the creation of the world. In fact, we're told in the book of Colossians that Jesus is the source and the cause and the sustainer of all things. All things are held together by him. Colossians 1.16 is your reference. In John's Gospel, we read this. In the beginning was the word. It's literally is when the beginning began. Okay, was the word. Jesus was already there. And uh, it says, and the word was with God and the word was God. This declaration that God's word is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. The word that we have translated as word is logos in the Greek. And it has these two ideas. One of them is reason in terms of thought that we can be rational and so on. Uh, And the second uh, word in terms of the expression of that thought. Well, Jesus is the expression, if you like, of the the thought of the father. So uh, it's one of the analogies when we try and understand the Trinity, which is a very difficult concept for, for us mortal human beings to try and get our heads around because it's so lofty. It's such a great concept, a great idea. Um, but that God effectively is the, the thought and Jesus is the word that expresses, you know, as people, we think something, but then we speak it. And the Holy Spirit is like the breath that carries it. So it's just one analogy that's sometimes used. We're told that in back in John's gospel, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. So it speaks of Jesus as not only being um, the word, but he's life, he's light, all of these things. And the world does not understand. It didn't comprehend. You know, all life originates from God. It's a really important thing to understand. Man can do all sorts of things with the material that we have. It can manipulate um, life in a sense, and we can get down to the genetic level and do all sorts of incredible things now. But life itself originates from God. See, Adam effectively was just a shell until God breathed life into him. You see, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, they'll talk about, you know, the molecules and the, uh, the way they believed everything started off in some primordial soup and became more complex and defied every law of science that we know to suddenly become, um, uh, organic living matter. Um, but even that misses the point because even if you have, uh, these things that are moving, that are growing, that are developing limbs or whatever else, 
you're still missing the essential ingredient of life. You know, God breathes into Adam this physical frame and he becomes a living soul. You see, life is far more than just the physical bodies. You know, and we're told that life itself is a great light. The fact that we look at a world that's teeming with life should be a great indicator that there is a creator God. But of course, we're told that man rejects that light. And that's why God had to be manifest in the flesh to help us to see and to lead us back from darkness where we placed ourselves into light. You know, as I said a moment ago, you know, life itself, the fact that we're alive, the fact that we're living on this living planet, teeming with life is the most undeniable proof or light, if you like, that man could need that there is a creator. Life cannot arise from non-life. You need intelligence to create life. Our genetic code is a digitally organized database that can't come around by random processes. Life does not come about purely by chance. And even if you could get chemicals to form together and form all sorts of things, they don't create life itself. It's a very different thing. And evolution can't explain life. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, there can't really be any such thing as life as we understand it, as it's commonly understood, just degrees of molecular complexity. Human being would be just a more complex arrangement of chemicals than, for example, a speck of dust, which is just made up of chemicals and atoms and molecules and so on. But, of course, we know we are far more than that. It means there could be, of course, no such thing as right or wrong or morals and those kind of things from an evolutionary perspective. But yet we have all of those things. It's, it's a foolish notion. It's propagated by the world's academia and education systems. And uh, we've said many times, it's brutally assaulted by the facts. You know, we all have a sense of justice, of right and wrong, this capacity to love, to hate and so on. And they can't be explained by natural processes. They're nothing to do with the physical world. Life isn't physical, not merely physical, it's spiritual. You know, it's interesting, even in the book of Genesis, when God creates, the first thing that's spoken of as truly being alive or living is created on day five, after the plants have been created. So we tend to look at plants and animals, or plants and vegetation as being alive or living. We think of it as being living. But strictly speaking, from a biblical perspective, the first thing that's declared to be living is that which has blood. Just as an interesting uh, side, you go and look at that. It's just an interesting uh, definition that we have of what actually is living and what's not living. Um, again, life um, is uh, a bright light. It should be. This is what we're told in John's Gospel, illuminating the way for all who will have their eyes opened or willing to. So again, that's the, the light uh, back into 1 John 1. And we read there that we have heard. So Jesus, this one who was from the beginning, from outside of time, John says that we heard him. You know, th- these are now appealing to our senses. This is empirical evidence that we're going to be seeing now. He then says that we have seen with our eyes. We didn't just hear it or perceive it. We actually saw Jesus Christ. We saw this light, this one who was from the be- before the world began. And then he says, which we have looked upon. And then our hands have handled of the word of life. And he's saying we physically touched Jesus in the upper room on the evening of the resurrection. If you remember, Jesus said, put your hands in the nail prints of my hands and in my side. Feel the spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. Again, this is empirical evidence. John is very keen to impress upon us that what he's sharing with us here, what he's revealing to us 
is not some fable. It's not some fiction. He was there. He was an eyewitness of these things. And he's giving us the testimony of somebody who saw it. Now, we've said already about the reasons for writing uh, in John's Gospel. At the end of John's Gospel, John says there, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That's the Gospel of John. But these are written, and notice what John says, that you might believe John says, I'm giving you evidence, I'm giving you proof that this is all true, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. See, John really wants to cut through all of the the fanciful notions and false religions and get to the truth here and say, look, this is true. Sir Edward Clark made this comment. He says, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. Of course, the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. He says, to me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. And John is making that point, that he could substantiate these claims he's making, this was the testimony of a truthful man. Well, again, we can move on in this first section, uh, the second verse, for the life was manifested and we've seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, uh, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And notice this is, again, what he wants to get across, that we can have fellowship. This koinonia is the, the Greek expression. Um, with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. This takes us back to really the beginning of the Bible, when God started that walk with man that was interrupted as a result of the fall. Remember that God used to walk with Adam. And we don't know how many days it was before the fall. They could have been in the garden for for weeks or months or a year before they ate of the fruit. Now, probably it wasn't all that long because we know the human heart. We know how we're prone to uh, disobey and so on. But nevertheless, there was that period of time before the fall that Adam walked with God. And we know for a fact that that's where we're heading again. John tells us that we can once again have fellowship with God. And ultimately, as we saw in our study last week, when we get to the new Jerusalem, that walk with God will be restored. But, you know, you and I can enjoy that even now. What was started in Eden, subsequently lost during the fall, can be regained through Christ. So we can have this relationship, this fellowship with God. And that's the goal. It's the end game, if you like. And back into Revelation 21, the verse we looked at last week, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Notice these expressions. There's going to be with men, with them, with them. It's incredible fellowship that we get to enjoy. Now we go on to verse 4, and these things write we unto you that your joy might be full. You see, true joy can't be found outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The world, the flesh, the devil, they all promise joy. In fact, they all they promise happiness and fulfillment and so on. And they can't deliver. They, they can't deliver the promise. But only through Jesus Christ can we find these things. We can find true joy in this relationship. We go on verse five and John says, this then is the message which we, which we've heard of him 
So John's now passing on what Jesus already said and declare unto you that God is light. And we looked at this in detail last week, so I'm not going to go into it again. It doesn't say God is like light. He says God is light. You know, light existed before the sun was created. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a sun because God and the Lamb will be the light of the city. And we thought in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, which is what John is saying that we he wants us to know we can have. If we say we have fellowship, but walk in darkness, well, guess what? John says you're lying. Yeah, you can't be walking in darkness and still have fellowship with God or say you have fellowship with him. If you're having fellowship with him, you're not walking in darkness. You know, those two can't exist side by side. Now, people can say certain things. We often, you know, we're very good, and particularly in this country, somebody says, how are you? What's our response? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, That may not be the truth. That may be very far from the truth. But that's typically how we respond. We can say that we have fellowship with God. You know, we can tell each other. We can try and convince other people. But, you know, if we are walking in darkness, it's a very clear fact that we are not having fellowship with God. Because if we're having fellowship with him, We're not walking in darkness. So a great remedy to not walking in darkness is to maintain that fellowship with God. Verse 7 goes on and says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, not only with God, but notice one with another. So what we immediately understand from this is if we are walking in darkness, if we are in a place where we have unconfessed sin in our life, something that we are not prepared or haven't yet dealt with and that's been revealed to us by his spirit, if we persist in that, not only does it break down the fellowship that we have with God, that's the most important, but it breaks down the fellowship that we can have with each other. You know, and it affects each other. You know, think back to the situation with Joshua and Achan and Achan who stole those garments from Jericho and hid them under his tent, thinking that nobody's going to see. Well, he wasn't having much fellowship with the children of Israel. When they discovered these things, when it came to light, they ended up having to put him to death because this cancer effectively had entered into the camp and it has to be dealt with. John will come to that in a second as we carry on through this in fact we read the last line there that uh, the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin so the light that we are to walk in this openness i mean when the light goes on it, it shows everything doesn't it it reveals everything you know if you've ever lost something what do you do you typically find a, a you know i say a torch you know for you young people now it's you just get your phone out and put the torch on your phone back in the day we had these things called torches but you know you typically shine the light on something just to, to see something to look for something light exposes and that's what it does in our life that's why if we have that relationship with jesus who is the light the light is shining in our life and it exposes the things that should not be there, that are not pleasing to God. And then, of course, by his grace, through his spirit, those things are dealt with and worked on in our lives. Again, just that last verse seven there. And if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And notice again, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. The idea is that it's ongoing. It's not just Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. And, you know, that was then. But now what happens if we sin today? Well, you know what? All of the sin that Jesus paid for on the cross for you and I was yet future. Everything, you know. And so the sins that we will commit today, tomorrow, next week, a year from now, if the Lord tarries, you know, all of those things were paid for 
at the cross. He cleanses us and keeps that, that blood has the power is sufficient to cover all of our sins to the end of our time on earth. And then the last three verses for this morning, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I mean, really what this is saying is quite simply, if we say we have no sin nature, if we try and pretend that actually, you know, well, I don't have a, an issue or a problem with that, and we try and you know, mask over it, then we're deceiving ourselves. You know, it was lovely uh, on Friday evening for the men just to be able to chat and uh, I pray ladies in a, a week or two's time when you have your ladies meeting, you can do the same thing, just to be able to share honestly with each other. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, well, I'm struggling at the moment. You know, I, I am having uh, trouble in this area of my life. We don't need to go into details and specifics necessarily. But just to admit that actually it's not been a good week. I've struggled praying or I've struggled reading the Bible. Or there's been a particular thing that's just just pulling my heart from the Lord. You know, those are the things we can be honest and share with each other so that we can pray for each other. You know, Paul says that there's no temptation that's overtaken you that's not common to all of us. We're all going through the same things. And John just says, look, if we say that we uh, have no sin, that everything's fine, you know, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then this great statement that we have, if we confess our sins, I mean, going to God, being honest with God, being real with him. And many of you know, I love Psalm 119. And one of the reasons I love it is because of the honesty there. You know, it, it's such a transparent psalm. And you see the psalmist there making the point time and time again, I'm really struggling with this God. And I feel I, 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 my life is like cleaving to the earth. I'm cleaving to the things of the world. I don't want it to be that way. You know, it's very much like Paul says in Romans chapter seven, just dichotomy, you know, the, the flesh and the spirit. I mean, pulled to the things I don't want to do, the things I want to do, I can't do. Well, this is what John's saying. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful. It's not about us. It's about his faithfulness because he's made a promise and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word cleanse is in the Greek katharizo. It's where we get our word catheterize. Uh, you know, most of you or a lot of you will be familiar with this uh, and so on. So you may have had this unpleasant experience of uh, having to endure a catheter. Um, but the idea is in, in the original that is to draw out, is to purge a poison from the system. This is what the blood of Christ does. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God wants to do, to draw out through the working of his spirit in us. As Romans 12, 2 says, uh, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we think differently. And then finally, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar because he's telling us we have and he knows far more than we know. And his word is not in us. But I praise God that we know his word is in us. And how do we know that? Because we have that knowledge, that understanding that, yes, we are sinners and we need his grace. We will build on it more next time. Chapter two, please read ahead. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you. This morning, for Lord, this opportunity just to study these things, to begin this journey. Oh, Father, we pray, uh, Lord, by your grace uh, that we would grow, that, Lord, we wouldn't try and pretend that everything's okay. And, Lord, especially with you, that we would recognize your word tells us that we do sin. But, Lord, if we sin, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We can come to you. Oh, and, Lord, you want us to be free from the shackles of sin. That's why you died, to purchase that freedom. And we can know it, and we can enjoy that fellowship with you. Oh, Lord, and if we enjoy the fellowship with you, we enjoy it with each other too. Lord, help us to grow in grace and understand these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.